We're heading to the very end of Luke now. On several occasions, Taylor, your other pastor, will give an illustration of one of his favorite people from church history. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was this uh, larger-than-life English Baptist preacher in the 1800s. He was larger-than-life in a lot of ways. He was large man, large belly, large beard, large voice, a large congregation, preached to 10,000 people routinely without amplification. Uh, had a large following and a large amount of criticism, as popular people are often going to have. And so far as we know, his character was always above board, but, you know, people like to criticize. One of the things Spurgeon was criticized for in his career was a habit that he had, a pastime that he had. He and his wife raised chickens, and they cultivated eggs, and they sold the eggs. And they always sold the eggs. They never gave the eggs away. And they, always, they never gave a discount on the eggs. But if you were family, you paid full price. If you were good friends, you paid full price all the time. And so people began to criticize, Charles Spurgeon, you do fine. You make plenty of money. Why don't you just be generous with these things? It's really not that much. If, and so the criticism went like this, if you were really generous, you would give those away. You wouldn't sell them, and you wouldn't sell them for full price. If you were really generous, then you would not sell them. If you were generous, then you would give them away. Lots of criticism. And as far as we can tell, Spurgeon never made one word of response to the criticism. Now, he was used to criticism, so this was probably small potatoes for him. But he, he was criticized for this for years and years, and he finally died, and that was just one of the criticisms that he took to his grave. And it wasn't until years later, years after his death, that it came out, that the reason Spurgeon never gave eggs away is because he and his wife, through the proceeds of those eggs, were nearly totally supporting two widows for decades. And so the criticism was, if you were really generous, then you would give those away. And the truth was, because he's really generous, he will never give them away. That same dynamic is at play in this text we're going to read. We have the authorities and the sort of the professional elite class criticizing Jesus and saying something like, if you were the king, right, if you were the Christ, Christ means king, if you were really a king, if you were really a king, you will serve yourself in this moment of crucifixion. If you were really a king, you will exercise your authority by getting off that cross if you can do it. If you were really a king, then you would rescue yourself from this situation of the cross. That was the critical voice. What comes through the text, though, is where the critical voice says, if you were really a king, you would serve yourself. The truth is, because he really is the king, he will serve us. If you were really a king, you would exercise your authority by getting off that cross. The truth is, because he really is the king, he will exercise his authority by staying right there. If you really are a king, you will rescue yourself from this situation. The truth is, because he really is king, he rescues you and me in the middle of that situation by the cross. Jesus, if you were really a king, you would serve yourself. The gospel teaches us because he really is a king, he serves his people. And that's what we see in this text. And we see it by Jesus engaging with three people. If you remember last week, 
Jesus doesn't engage when he's on trial. He doesn't engage in darkness when, for all these worldly reasons, he should. It may make total sense just to defend himself and engage, and he doesn't do it. He answered not a word to Herod. To Herod. This week, we're going to see he has every worldly reason not to engage at all. He's been crucified, and stunningly, three different times, he engages with people. Why? Because he's serving. He's serving. And the way we see Jesus serving here, one of the ways, is not just going to the cross, being a substitute for his people, which we'll see actually the fullness of that next week, but it, even in this process, he is serving to, he's serving us by reminding us that the cross must be the center of life. So let's look at this passage. If you remember, Jesus has been arrested. He's been tried. It's a rush job trial. It's a scam. But again, darkness doesn't play by the rules. So he's taken away. Uh, They release a robber, possibly a murderer in his place, Barabbas. Jesus takes Barabbas' place. Barabbas goes free while Jesus is uh, sentenced to death. So we now pick this up in Luke 23, verse 26. It's in your insert. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So Simon of Cyrene, we're not, Cyrene is a long way from Jerusalem. It's in modern-day Tripoli in Libya. So I know that's just on the other side of the globe, on your globe. It's like 2,000 miles or 1,700 miles or something like that from Jerusalem. It's a long way by camel, right? So Simon is, uh, he's, a, he's an African Jew from Libya who's in Jerusalem probably for Passover, but not just for that because it's like a two-month journey. And we don't know anything about Simon, really, except that he was coming into the city and the soldiers co-opted him to carry the crossbeam that Jesus was supposed to carry. So what would happen is the, the, the prisoner condemned would have to carry the probably a 40-pound piece of wood on his back. But what you have to remember, before this, uh, Jesus has a lot of things going on, and he's too tired to carry the crossbeam. So what's happened? Jesus had a full week of teaching, preaching, which is exhausting if you do it. And then he had uh, a big Passover meal with several glasses of wine. We talked about that. Then he went out in the middle of the night and got arrested. He hadn't slept yet. He was praying. He got arrested. And then he got taken to the high priest's uh, house, and then he was beat up for several hours. And then he was taken to this little scam trial and this scam trial and back to Herod and to, to back to Pilate. And so it's just been a whirlwind. So he's exhausted and he's been beaten. And before a person is crucified under the Roman law, they were scourged. What does that mean? It sounds bad, right? There's movies called The Scourge. Well, it is bad. I'm not recommending the movie, by the way. Um, uh, scourging is uh, Jesus would be stripped down to the waist and either chained or tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that had several strands on it, and in those strands was uh, woven pieces of bone to tear the flesh, right? So, and he would be whipped, you know, the, 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 the number typically is 39 times, 39 lashes. Sometimes the scourging itself killed people. It's a brutal, I can't even imagine it. I've never experienced anything even close to that probably one time, one whip, one lash. Jesus is exhausted, and he's been beaten, he's bleeding, uh, so 
it's not surprising he doesn't have the ability to carry this 40 to 50 pound crossbeam. And so they grab Simon of Cyrene to carry it. Interestingly, we don't know anything about Simon except later his family is known to the church. It could be that Simon probably wasn't a follower of Jesus. He's from like 1,500 miles away. This could have been Simon's entrance into the faith. Verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, these probably aren't actual followers of Jesus who are saying, you're the Messiah, but they're probably professional mourners. Like, it's an expressive culture. Uh, and so they were, they were lamenting, oh, the, the tragedy and the, oh, the Romans are oppressing the Jews again. And there's just a lot of weeping and wailing. And then verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, pause, got to picture the situation. He's beaten, he's bleeding, it's completely humiliating. He's, he is too weak to carry the cross, so he's shuffling along out of the city, and Simon's carrying this cross being behind. And by now there's hundreds of people, and you got some people cursing him, some people mocking him, some people wailing and weeping. Why would he talk to anyone? Like he's exhausted, he's beaten, it's embarrassing. There's a cacophony of noise, but turning to them, Jesus says something. Why does he do this? He's a servant. He came to seek and save the lost. This is what he's doing. He says this, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. And then there's this little parabolic statement. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What's Jesus saying? Daughters of Jerusalem. Judgment is coming on this city. This may the hills fall on us and the rocks cover us is a judgment language from Hosea 10 that gets picked up in the book of Revelation. But he's saying there's destruction coming for this city. We've looked at this already in, in Luke 17 and Luke 21. I think Taylor preached the entire Luke 21 of judgment in one sermon. It took like an hour and a half. I was on vacation. But I've heard about it and I heard it was great. But there's judgment coming on this city in relation to what they're doing with this Messiah Prince right now. And it's not like vindication or vindictiveness, like, well, if you do accept, don't accept Jesus, I'll crush you, Jesus says. From page 3 of the Bible, we're told the story that our world is in desperate trouble. It's invaded and in, in, infested by a sickness called sin that's like cancer that's having its destructive way. And just like if, if we had a, 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 our body was riddled with cancer and we had a cancer cure that we knew would cure it and we said no to it, the cancer would have its destructive way in our bodies and we would die. That's what's going on in our world. That's what sin is. It's a cancer. And 
if the cure is rejected, that cancer has its way and destruction comes. That's what was going to happen to Jerusalem within one generation. And it certainly happened to Jerusalem within one generation. So Jesus is saying, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children. Because as much as the Jews love children, in that day it will be better if you never had any. Because you won't see your children suffering because there's such destruction coming. And when we preached Luke 17 and Luke 21, several of you said, you know, what's interesting is how that language about the destruction of Jerusalem is much like the language of the destruction sort of of the end of the world when sin has its full effect. And that's right, because it's an echo of that. It's a foreshadowing of that, because it's related to that. In a world, a world that rejects the work of Jesus on the cross, the only thing left is for sin to have its full effect. So why am I saying this? If this event happened, this must be the most significant thing currently in the world. The most significant thing internationally for all the nations of the earth is not international monetary policy, as important as that is. It is. It is not. The most significant thing in the earth is not the oppression of the poor by the strong. As significant as that is. It's not poverty, famine, injustice. As significant as all of those things are. The most significant thing today, this day, in the entire earth, is the answer to the question, what do we do with the cross? That's why Mark Moss just play, prayed for the, uh, the Barvala people in India. I'm not saying the other things aren't important. Don't hear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This must be the most important thing. It, it, without, without question is the most important thing. This is the center. And Jesus loves us enough, even in, this, in, in the midst of being beaten and exhausted to tell us that. Verse 32. Oh, the, the, what if they do these things when the wood is green? What will happen? What is dry? What that means? Your guess is as good as mine or any other commentator, honestly. Just trying to tell you the truth here. You're getting lots of different opinions. Probably something along the lines of if Jesus, the life, full of life representative of Israel, the green root or the green tree, full of life, is treated this way, how much more will Israel, which is just about dead and uh, spiritless, what will happen to them? We don't really know. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified with, uh, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Isaiah 53 says Jesus will be numbered among the, the criminals, the transgressors, and here it is. No gospel writer pays much attention to all the details of the crucifixion. I hear that the, the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I've never seen it, don't intend to see it, but I hear it's very graphic, very detail-oriented. They're making a lot of it up because the Bible doesn't talk about what happened with Jesus so much other than he was crucified. Right? We know that crucifixion, they, they would take somebody out, they would wrap their arms around a crossbeam, and then they would put uh, nails through the hand or the wrist, or occasionally they would 
put a one nail through both hands above their heads. It looks like Jesus was stretched out. And then they would put that cross beam, somehow fix it to an upright pole or on a tree. Uh, those, those big poles were a little bit hard to come by. And the way people would die really would be asphyxiation. Because they would sink down and just not be able to push themselves up to, to breathe anymore. That's how they would die. But no gospel writer, including Luke, pays much attention to the detail. It says that he was crucified between two thieves. And he was, it happened at a place called the skull. Now, what does that mean? What is the place of the skull? Anybody know the name of that place from another gospel? A little trivia. Golgotha. Very good. What is that place? Okay, so this is where I need a two-minute nerd break, okay? Two minutes, maybe three minutes, of tracing out a breadcrumb the Scripture lays down for us, possibly. This is a little nerdish, but hang with me. The place of the skull. It, we don't know this for sure. i got to qualify this. If I had a, a larger pulpit, I would step away from the center. So it's like, I'm not saying the Bible says this, but it could be the place of the skull. In Genesis 3, sin has come into the world, and God comes and he says to the serpent, what you've done today, I will send one to undo. Genesis 3.15. And he says, if you remember these words, you, this one who will come to undo this, you will crush his heel... But he, serpent, Satan, will crush your head. So the Messiah is going to come, and you're going to bruise his heel or crush his heel, but in like he's going to crush your head. That's, and then throughout the Bible, there's these people that represent Satan over time. One of them, for instance, is Pharaoh. He has the satanic power. It's a lot of, uh, you know, lining up of Satan and Pharaoh. He's also, so uh, Satan is a serpent. There are two people in the Bible who are said to be covered with scales. One of them is Pharaoh. That's Ezekiel 29. This Satan-like figure. The other person who is said in the Bible to be covered like scale, with scales is Goliath. Goliath. So, first, I know you're like, what are we talking about? Goliath is in 1 Samuel. We're in the... Here we go. Okay. Um, glad you asked what we're talking about. And you would miss it because it doesn't actually say scales in your English translation. 1 Samuel 17, 5. Goliath had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of, and it says mail in my English translation, like chain mail. But it's not the word mail. It's the word scales. Who else is covered with scales in the Bible? Pharaoh. Who else? Nobody except this serpent in the garden. Okay. Uh, so there's this picture. Think about David is the anointed one. This Christ figure who is said to represent his people and come out and fight against this, uh, this evil figure of the Philistines. So David is a, you know, kind of a Messiah, and he comes out and he fights against Goliath. And before that, though, Goliath comes and taunts the people of Israel for several days saying, why don't you have somebody come out and fight me? You're not strong enough to fight me. He tempts them over and over again for guess how many days he tempts the Israelites for. Anybody? 40 days. Does that sound familiar? In Luke 4, Satan tempts Jesus 40 days in the wilderness just in case we're missing the possibility that, that, uh, that Goliath is a Satan character and David is a Jesus character who's going to fight him. Okay, so then David is not dissuaded at all by Goliath's fighting and he comes out and he fights. And do you remember how David kills Goliath? He doesn't wear armor. 
he takes a rock and a sling and he throws the, the, the rock at him. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel 17, 49. The stone sank into Goliath's forehead, crushed his head, and he fell on his face. And then David went over and he took Goliath's own weapon and he lifted it up and he cut off Goliath's head. The head is crushed. The skull is severed from the body by this Christ figure. But we're not done. There's this little throwaway line at the end of 1 Samuel 17. This, this, these, these are the kind of things that just, uh, just are gifts to careful Bible readers. Verse 54, this all wraps up. And it said this, summary of statement. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Well, that's interesting. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem. It's kind of like if you ever saw Braveheart, they walk around the armies with the heads of their dead, like, this is what David's doing. I, it ain't pretty, I'm just saying this is what he did. Uh, Jerusalem, at that moment, wasn't under possession of the Israelites. The Jebusites had it. David takes the head of Goliath. He marches to Jerusalem, probably says to the Jebusites, see this guy? Remember Goliath? This will happen to you if you resist us. He runs the Jebusites out. But because of Israelite clean laws, a severed head's not going to be in the camp. It has to be left outside the camp. Where? Jerusalem is surrounded by hills. It's going to be left on a hill. This is the most famous severed head in the history of Israel. It's the most famous skull. My husband is the place of the skull is where Goliath's head was buried. This Satan figure defeated by this Christ figure, David, hundreds of years before. Wouldn't it be appropriate if Jesus himself were led out to the place of the skull, right over the place where the satanic-like head was buried, and he was lifted up, his feet right above that ground on a cross? I don't know, but I think it's a pretty good trail of breadcrumbs. So that's not in the text. It's just a possibility. Um, you can tell me why you think that's crazy later or you think that's interesting, but um, I just think the place of the skull. Oh, check this out too. This is great. Golgotha doesn't mean skull. There's a Hebrew word that means head or helmet, Golagot. But where, anybody know where Goliath is from? Anybody? Goliath of Gath. Golagath. It's a contraction of the words Goliath and Gath. Golagatha. Anyway. Okay. At the place of the skull. <laughs> okay, we're, we're back in the, in the narrative now. Um, so Jesus is crucified. He can't, like, he can't breathe, right, because he sinks down. Very hard to breathe or talk, and yet he does say something. What's he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say they don't know what they do, therefore they're not guilty. He says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, but they're still guilty. So the fact that they are receiving orders from higher up means nothing. Like that's the Nuremberg defense from World War II. Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the Holocaust, said, I shouldn't be guilty because I was just following orders. Just following orders means you're guilty. It's not what, they're not guilty because of what they're doing. They're doing what they're doing because they're guilty. Because everybody's guilty. <laughs> but here's why, we've got to see this. Jesus, in this moment, 
to these people who have tied him there, who have nailed uh, spikes to his hands and his feet, he speaks. He doesn't have to speak. He speaks and says, this is his desire, Lord, may they be forgiven. What's of Jesus is accomplishing on the cross is available even to those who are crucifying. Do you see the generosity of that? This is a generous, serving Savior. Now, friends, if that's Christ's heart even toward his captors, persecutors, and torturers, what about to you? What about to me? What is his heart? His, Christ's heart is to give us the benefits to even the most vilest people, even the most vile people in here, in, in, in your own skin. We've got to see Christ's heart to give forgiveness. It's on display right here. The rest of verse 34, and they cast lots to divide his garments. That fulfills a prophecy of Psalm 22. It was a perk of being an executioner. You got the clothes. Clothes were much more expensive today than relative to today. Verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. They're like a cupbearers, oh sire, oh king of the Jews, have some wine. By offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. It was a mockery. It was his death sentence. And it was true. This is the king of the Jews. The the theme of mocking is so strong in the trial and crucifixion. Here, the elders, the, the, the Jewish ruling class, scoffing. The soldiers, mocking. Uh, the cross is still foolishness today. It's still foolishness. Colossians 1, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1. Hear these words. I, they're in your insert too. Verse 21 for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we cre preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of the cross to this day is heard, and people are like, either, if they're hearing it clearly, there are three adequate responses to the cross. That means we heard it clearly. Either that is offensive, that is foolish, or that is life-giving power. Only one of those delivers you from death, but all three mean you've heard it. It's Foolishness, it's offensive, or it's life-giving power. And I know, look, I'm a, I'm a, I have a vocation that used to, people like, it used to be an honorable vocation, right? Now I don't tell people I'm a pastor in our world, especially on the east side a little bit, you know, hipster, quasi, you know, progressive area called Irvington. Um, I don't lead with that. 
80 years ago, you could lead with that. Why? The gospel is seen as folly in our culture. Okay? Uh, here's, a, here's a philosopher. See how right you think he is? He writes, I'll tell you who it is in a second, but he writes, in the old days, people were thrown to wild beasts, but in the modern world, they're thrown to the public but by the way of the internet. As a result, if Christ came to the world now, he would perhaps not be put to death, but would be ridiculed. This is martyrdom in the age of reason. Similarly, in the age of reason, ridicule is the most feared of all dangers. In our, in our times, a person can more easily bear everything but being made a laughingstock, not to mention exposed to being exposed to daily ridicule. People shrink more from this danger than from the most torture-filled death. I think that's a pretty appropriate modern rendering of the role, the power of shame and public exposure in our culture. But I changed one word in there. It wasn't internet, it was the word press, and it was by Soren Kierkegaard in the 1850s. So he was looking around and saying, wow, public ridicule is the most powerful weapon the enemy has now in the 1850s. Think about today, where you can say one stupid thing and it's memorialized forever in cyberspace. And any time a critic wants, they can go find it, right? The cross is foolishness to our world. And as followers of Jesus, so the writer of um, Rankin-Wilborn, the writer of the book I pulled this out of, writes, this kind of social opposition is especially difficult for Christians who have made a priority of cultural relevance and presenting the gospel in a seeker-friendly way. We assume that if we could just find the right way to present the gospel, people would accept it. And if people just got to know us, they would see we're really not so bad after all. That may all be true, but the gospel is still offensive or foolish or life-giving power. Here's the great news. Jesus knows what it is to be mocked. He knows what it is to be exposed. Therefore, he knows how to help us should we face the same. Back to the narrative. And we're closing here. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. If you were the Christ, you would get down. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, or when you, literally that means when you return in kingly power. So this is your, the thief on the cross, if you know the story. One of the, and it didn't happen right away. It looks like this guy probably at the beginning mocked him from another gospel writer, and then comes around and seeing how Jesus is dying, seeing how Jesus is offering forgiveness. He's like, so he shuts the other criminal up, saying, we're actually guilty. This one is not. Jesus, remember me. In the, and he would be meaning in the future when you return in kingly power. And Jesus, okay, we're close to the end here. He doesn't have to say anything. This guy, he's got, he's got faith. I mean, this is, sometimes we think, is this, bare, is this barely faith? Actually, I think it's clearly faith. What's he going to do to impress Jesus? <laughs> he can't do it. He's tied to a tree. So I've got nothing, and I need you. That a per, that's a person who gets the gospel. 
And Jesus doesn't have to say anything. He could be like, yeah, <laughs> just nod, wink, something. But he says this. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. He, this is the final person he serves here, gives him ridiculous hope. Oh, yes, when I come into my kingly power, I'll remember you, but it's much better than that. Today, you will be with me in paradise. They're both going to die. This guy's going to go to paradise. We call it heaven, but actually the Bible does not call where they're going heaven. It calls it paradise. Paradise is a Persian word, meaning, anybody know what the word paradise, uh, paradise means? Garden. Garden. Today you will be with me in the garden. I should call to mind two gardens, one at the beginning and one at the end of the book. The Garden of Eden, where we were created and the new earth, which is a garden city, which is where we're going. Right now, this guy will be with Jesus in the garden of heaven with an anticipation of this renewed earth. But it points us back to this reality. You and I were originally created with glory to be in the garden. And sin has cracked that and broken that. And dissipated that. And it works different for each one of us, but it's true for all of us. One of the things this is saying here is that in Jesus, we get our life back. However, this, the brokenness of this world has cracked and fractured your life, though it would be different than anybody else's. What Jesus offered is getting our life back. With a vision to this full flourishing that's coming in the future. He doesn't have to tell the, this guy that, but he does. He doesn't have to say it to us today, but he does. Do you know that in Jesus, what he offers you is the image of God fully restored in connection with him? That's what's on offer from Jesus to us. Part of the reason we come to the table is because we believe Jesus the King is still a servant, and he serves us These the benefits of what he's accomplished for us at the cross. So we're going to go to the communion table now. If you are in Christ Jesus by faith, this is for you. Um, we're going to, I'm going to pray and then invite you to go get the, the bread and the cup and bring it back to your seat. Remember we said last week we don't have to hurry. It's not a sprint. It just takes your time. We'll come back to our seats and then we'll all take together. Uh, one thing you need to know, there's the, the red liquid is wine. The white liquid is grape juice, especially if younger people are taking it. Lord Jesus, you are a servant. You have served us. You served us. You became a curse for us, as we'll see next week. But you have, in so many ways, communicated to us, let the cross be the center of the world, the center dealing with our guilt, the center bringing us hope. May it be so, Lord Jesus. In your power and through your name we pray. Amen. I invite you as you're prepared to go and um, go to the table, get the bread and the cup, and take it back to your seat.